Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, what's your reaction when you hear a recording of your own voice? Do you like it or not? Turns out most people are surprised, some unpleasantly so. We find out why. We mine for information about how cryptocurrency, with their anonymity and decentralized nature, could allow those sanctioned for the Russian invasion of Ukraine to skirt the rules. For decades, the West and Russia have cooperated in space, most notably on the International Space Station. But will the war in Ukraine put an end to that long era of cooperation? And what impact could that have? But first, there has been widespread condemnation today of Russia's bombing of a theater in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol, where hundreds of people were sheltering from attacks. We speak to the Ukrainian MP from Mariupol about the siege of his city, the dire humanitarian situation, and what can be done to try to save lives before it's too late. You know, we've spoken so much about the tragedies unfolding in Ukraine these past three weeks. Guests describing fleeing war, living in war zones, watching as their cities, their homes, their plans for the future crumble under a barrage of often indiscriminate Russian firepower. Russia may not be winning this war. That doesn't mean millions of Ukrainians aren't hanging on for survival every single day. And that probably isn't more true than in the city of Mariupol, the southern coastal city of Mariupol, home once to more than 400,000 people. Well, yesterday, quite publicly, Russia attacked a theater in the center of that city, all but destroying the building. Hundreds of people had been sheltering from shelling and bombing there, the shelling and bombing that's rained down on their city for 21 days. It was feared that hundreds may be dead. And today that attack drew widespread condemnation, including from U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and President Joe Biden. Yesterday, Russian forces bombed a theater in Mariupol, where hundreds of people had been taking shelter. The word children had been written in Russian in giant white letters on the pavement outside the building so that you could know from the air that there were children inside. Putin's brutality and what he's doing and his troops are doing in Ukraine is just inhumane. A murderous dictator, a pure thug who is waging an immoral war against the people of Ukraine. Well, today, a sliver of somewhat good news amid so much bad news, a ray of hope on an otherwise bleak day for those trapped in that city. It's now believed that there were no victims, that no one died at least. That's the early indications from that bombing. Again, those still in that city, though, under siege for a 22nd day, running short of food, water, without electricity, unable to flee as humanitarian corridors are also attacked, stuck looking for refuge in buildings that are now also targets for Russia. Well, joining me now with more is Dmitry Guerin. He's a member of the Ukrainian parliament from Mariupol. He still has family in that city tonight. Dmitry, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for inviting me. I guess an update on everyone. I think many people have seen images of the attack on the theater in central Mariupol yesterday. Um, I gather there is at least some positive updates coming from that attack today. The last information we have is that uh, there is no casualties. Uh, you know that there is a big problem uh, to connect uh, with Mariupol and get news from there. But uh, we know that uh, this basement uh, in uh, drama theater, uh, it uh, wasn't uh, broken, it wasn't destroyed. And uh, people, by our last information, people, people are safe. 
this was there were two attacks i gather yesterday both on a swimming pool nearby and on the theater itself which were known to be places where people were taking refuge these are indiscriminate attacks against civilians uh how do you describe it uh it's a very simple story russia three weeks ago uh, started an ordinary war just a conventional war army against army when they uh, have seen and uh, all the world by the way have seen that uh, they cannot beat us on a battlefield and everybody understood that uh, uh, so-called second army uh, of uh, in the world is uh, just a joke uh, and uh, <clears throat> they decided they decided to start the terrorizing our city they took a mariupol in the siege and uh, they are start they started to just heavily bomb Mariupol, they destroyed, as for now, uh, 30% of all the buildings in the city are totally destroyed, and 50% are hardly damaged. So there is no Mariupol in, anymore, it's uh, Aleppo, and uh, uh, Russians just, uh, it's, it's not the war anymore, it's mass murdering. Uh, we see clearly that they want uh, to start hunger in Mariupol, uh, just to uh, enforce uh, their position uh, on the diplomatic processes. And they will sit and uh, every day people will die from hunger and uh, Russians will sit and wait and ask, is it okay for you that 10,000 more people uh, died from hunger in Mariupol? Mm-hmm. And f- for us, for Ukraine, of course, it's not okay. And uh, for state terrorists, that is Russia is, it's okay. Mm-hmm. There are, I understand, hundreds of thousands of people still trapped in the city. They can't get out. Humanitarian corridors, or at least humanitarian corridors, are being attacked. Humanitarian corridors are being attacked from the first day. And the first day they sat, uh, uh, they opened humanitarian corridors. Of course, they didn't. Uh, but uh, they uh, shot from artillery to the meeting points for evacuation. And then they, uh, they were uh, shelling of humanitarian uh, convoys and uh, they are shooting all the people uh, trying uh, to escape uh, just on their, on their private cars, the civilians with white flags. Uh, and uh, uh, they have an order to kill everybody who tries to escape. So they, it, it's, uh, we see that their goal is hunger in the middle of Europe. And all the world who is saying that so you all are united around Ukraine. So you're all united and uh, in this United States, just looking for hunger to breaking up in the middle of Europe, in uh, one third of million people, not because we don't have food, but because one mad maniac blocks the city. Mitro, this is your hometown. You were you, On Twitter, you have pictures of where you used to buy food when you were a kid at school. It must be devastating to have to watch well and uh, so little to do at this point. they live uh, they, i lived in uh, mariupol for 15 years uh, 10 uh, uh, years in school and five in, in university and uh, uh they destroyed like this 15 years of my life it's totally destroyed uh my school my university my uh yards my building uh, all, all the building around the building where I lived in, uh, like a nine-story building with 200 flats, is totally burned, and uh, uh, there is no any chance uh, to restore it, which has just to be demolished. Uh, so 
No, they they really they bombed my past and they destroyed my past. It's a uh, very interesting feelings. What could be? I mean, we hear so many kind words coming out of the West. We hear kind words after uh, President Zelensky spoke to Canada earlier this week, to the U.S. yesterday, to Germany today. <clears throat> but what can be done? What must be done to save those living in Mariupol right now? Well, first of all, uh, everybody have uh, to understand that World War Three it started. That Mr. Putin said they are not going uh, to invade Ukraine. Now he's saying they did not invade Ukraine and that uh, they are uh, not going to invade Europe, like NATO countries. And uh, they uh, they already didn't uh, uh, want to invade Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's inevitable. They will invade. Uh, will uh, uh, you know attack? I think Baltic states and Poland. Uh, because Mr. Putin can, cannot stop. Uh, he just don't know how to. He never stopped. And uh, he's raising stakes more and more. And uh, uh, they decided to have a war against all the world. <laughs> You've written, or at least shared, the idea that there can be no compromise. There can be no negotiating with Vladimir Putin. Even to save, even if it meant, I guess... Uh, the promise, perhaps not the not the reality, but the promise of of trying to save or at least open up humanitarian corridors from Mariupol. You think there there can't be a compromise? There is no negotiating right now. Well, we, of course, we are trying to negotiate, and we are uh, making all the force in diplomatic processes. Uh, it's you know, it's uh, just a problem is they don't want to negotiate, and they don't want to to have any compromises. Uh, they uh, it's okay for them to kill civilians, you know. They, ha- they are killing uh, on a butcher and they're paying. We have uh, refugees uh, from there now and uh, they, they, they're incredible stories. The Russian soldiers killing people for fun. For fun, once again. And uh, we have uh, the, the usual fasc- f- f- fascist state we have seen 80 years ago and now we are hearing talks about uh, like uh, races yesterday from Mr. Putin about clean races and non-clean races, about uh, national traitors, and uh, that uh, Russia need repress uh, these people. So we, all of us, we have seen it, and uh, uh, it's uh, once again, it's not, it's not the war anymore. It's mass murdering. And when you asked what we have, all of us have to do to free people to, from Mariupol, uh, we understand that no-fly zone. We are asking you and asking you about no-fly zone. You are saying no, it's not possible. Okay, so let's all together press on Mr. Putin and make a real humanitarian corridor from Mariupol and get our children and get our uh, uh, our elderly out of the mouse trap. Because no water, no food, no heating, or uh, electricity, mobile network, and uh, temperature below zero uh, at night, like minus seven. Speaking with Dmitry Guerin, member of the Ukrainian parliament uh, from Mariupol, we're talking about the situation in that city under siege now for three weeks, the dire humanitarian situation in that city, not to mention the indiscriminate bombing of residential areas in that city. When we come back, we'll talk briefly about the fact that Mariupol has in fact been on the front lines of a war with Russia for eight years now, and what warnings may have been heeded earlier so that this wouldn't happen. We'll be back. I'm back with Dmitry Guerin, member of the Ukrainian parliament from the southern Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, under siege now for three weeks 
uh, a dire humanitarian situation in the city itself, uh, civilian being shelled indiscriminately by Russian forces. Dimitro, you've been watching this war now for a long time. Uh, it's been eight years that Mariupol has been sitting on the front line, essentially, of a war with Russia. Were there warnings earlier that weren't heeded by everyone? Did you know this was, did you see this day coming when Putin would go this far? Yeah, of course, because they have the same tactics. And uh, as a person who lived uh, uh, in Moscow during uh, 12 years uh, uh, during the regime of Putin, uh, I understood that uh, they, they always do the same thing. They did it in Chechnya, they did it in uh, uh, Georgia, they did it in Syria. And uh, they will do it. They will do it everywhere. It's just okay for them, you know. The people are, are of two categories. For one, it's not possible to kill civilians, and to other, it's possible. And to the to the guys who can, who are able to kill civilians, and to are able to drop bombs on maternity hospitals and uh, the, the drama theater where the huge letters children. Is written near the building, yeah, for, for especially for pilots uh, of uh, airplane, and for, for these guys who can drop these bombs, it's not the point for them on which in which cities they drop drop a bomb in Wroclaw, in Warsaw, in Riga, or in Mariupol. They just can do it, and uh, maybe you know that uh, Putin's Goebbels, uh, Mr. Solovyov, already said that Ukraine is uh, just a, just a, you know first step. On national Russian TV, so what have to all this all the world have to understand that it's already World War Three, and it's only the matter of time when you join this war. And the only difference is the difference between how many Ukrainian people will die, and uh, on which territory do you will you have this war. Yeah, and w- w- in the moment you will join, in in which territory this uh, war will be uh, that time? On the territory of Ukraine or in the territory of NATO? And and you have you know to think about it twice. And this from someone, as you mentioned, you've lived both on the front lines of a war for twelve years, or for many many years, and then in Moscow for twelve years as well. For listeners who don't know this. The city of Mariupol at one point was part of a, you know, was voted for Viktor Yanukovych way back when. Has Vladimir Putin succeeded in turning Mariupol into a city that will forever be Ukrainian and fly the Ukrainian flag? Can he ever, can Russia ever conquer that city? I think, uh, I think, yes. I think all the cities that were attacked by uh, Putin, uh, all all of these cities will be pro-Ukrainian forever because uh, now we have a moment when uh, all, uh, all the, when we, you know, we now the solid nation now. We never had, we always had questions, we always had, you know, uh, what's our, uh, like, uh, course uh, of future, what, what Ukraine have to be. Now we don't have this question. Now we don't have all these questions. Now we have solid nation that understands what all of us want to do and what all of us wants to be like free, democratic, uh, economically successfully successful, uh, integrated into European Union and safe country for everybody, for all Ukrainians. And that's our vision of future. And uh, uh, the Mr. Putin, he already lost 
everything he lose in this in this game he thought that he that ukraine will be the part of russian world you know that uh russian speaking world but it will never be anymore because in mariupol people couldn't believe that uh putin will bomb russian speaking city 95% of people in mariupol are still russian speaking and they couldn't my parents resisted to go away from to evacuate from mariupol because they couldn't believe it wasn't possible for them that putin will do it it's it, it's not possible they are all living in the myth of uh, you know that that sold russian soldiers of ussr soldiers of world war 2 that were noble and they saved lives and all and all this blah 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 and now we see what russian soldiers and russian army really are so dmitro what now i mean it, we've seen this continue now for 3 weeks the siege of mariupol do you see any hope that it will stop before the city is completely destroyed? I think no. I think uh, that uh, their goal is uh, hunger in Mariupol to uh, enforce their uh, position on diplomatic processes. Really, I, I think it's a goal. And, uh, no, and uh, everybody knows it. Everybody uh, in the world knows that Mariupol is out of food. And Mariupol is out of water. And because of cl- climate, the city doesn't have wells. Right. You know, they are really out of water. And uh, uh, everybody knows it. And uh, everybody is just looking. Oh, so bad. We are so concerned about Mariupol. Dimitro Guerin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it today. I uh, hope all your loved ones are safe. Thank you. It seems to me most people, when they hear their own voice, whether it be on a voice message you put on your phone or anywhere else, most people don't much love their own voice. In fact, it's a thing. It's called voice confrontation. It's related to self-confrontation. It's the phenomenon of a person not liking the sound of their own voice. How widespread is it? Well, here's actor John Malkovich explaining the phenomenon to Conan O'Brien. Do you like your voice? I hate it. You hate your voice. Yeah. That's, uh, that's when I when I hear myself, which I try never to do. <laughs> to me, it sounds like someone who's kind of labored under heavy narcotics <laughs> for for years and years. And, uh, I mean, I think most people don't don't like their voice and i just could never stand it if i hear a phone message i leave or something i just or or when i'm acting i always think who is this person well that about says it all doesn't it and it turns out to dislike one's own voice is part physiological and part psychological Joining me now with more is Dr. Neil Batt. He's an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Washington, specializing in treating voice, airway, and swallowing disorders. He joins me tonight from Seattle. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Great to meet you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, I guess just for listeners who might not know exactly what it is that you do, what uh, what sort of treatment do you offer and what kind of patients do you see? Sure. So um, I treat... Uh, a wide range of conditions uh, focused on the throat. So um, I'm a laryngologist, that's the official name, and it's under the big umbrella of otolaryngology, which is 
ear, nose, and throat. Uh, but yeah, medical surgical treatments for people with voice, breathing, and swallowing disorders. So I gather just from, from reading around that one of the things that you do when treating people with voice issues is that you record them um, over time, I suppose, to, to see what the changes are. Is that in fact, is that the case in, in, with you? Absolutely. Um, we are often biased with what we feel like people's voice uh, was after we treat them. And so to keep, I think, the treatments, medications, uh, assessments honest, I will routinely record a very standardized vocal passage. And uh, after surgery, therapy, medical treatment, I routinely play it back to really, in a more uh, objective way, analyze whether the voice truly is better. Because sometimes people go through lots of treatments and they, you know, maybe subjectively feel like things are better, but a voice recording really gives us a lot of information. So yes, absolutely. Routinely record uh, my, my patient's uh, voice. So is it in fact true, and I guess this is true, people probably hear themselves more now because there's so many different ways you can record your own voice these days compared to to back when, but are people generally fairly uncomfortable with the sounds of their own voice when you play it back for them, regardless of the condition of their voice? Yes. Um, and I can sense it in some people. They just don't like hearing their voice. And a lot of uh, patients will ask me, is that me? Do I really sound like that? And, uh, you know, uh, the video and the audio, keep, they don't lie. You can see them speaking. So it, it is, in fact, them. Um, but yes, a lot of people are very uncomfortable. So what is the difference? Because I think we all have our inside voice, and I mean literally our inside voice, not the <laughs> one that doesn't speak out loud, but literally the voice that we hear, um, and then the voice that's played back to us uh, on a recording. Where does the difference lie? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of physiology, and then it's a little bit, the second reason I think is a little bit more abstract. Uh, but, you know, in terms of physiology, when you produce voice, uh, very broadly speaking, air goes from your lungs, which powers your voice, vibrates your vocal cords, and then sound is shaped and comes out of your mouth. Um, when you hear yourself, though, some of that auditory signal or sound has the capacity to vibrate the soft tissues in our face vibrate the bone in our skull and directly stimulate the cochlea or the organ of hearing. And so it's a little bit of mixture of bone conduction, which is the internal conduction, as well as air conduction, which is the outside. A lot of times you'll see singers really tuning themselves by blocking out the outside by putting a finger in their ear. So when you hear yourself, it's a blending of these two. Um, but when you hear a recording, you don't have that internal uh, bone conduction. Some of the richness may be a little bit lost. But I think it, it goes to the second answer is that for lots of things, how we look, how we sound, we have a self-perception. And that self-perception is an important part of us. And when there's a bit of a disconnect between what we think we sound like and what we do sound like, it, it's uncomfortable. And so a lot of people will say, I personally hate the sound of my voice, but other people don't seem to have a problem with it. I was going to say, why is it that people, and this is just from personal experience, why is it that people always think the voice they hear on the recording is worse than the voice they hear inside their head? 
That's a good question. I, you know, my answer is I think maybe some of the richness, some of the bass tones that you feel uh, maybe lost a little bit. Um, but I also think that we develop our persona, our, our identity based on our voice. It's, it's a big part of it. We don't think of it that way. And when it sounds different, maybe slightly more nasal, slightly higher pitched, um, it, uh, it's, it's an eye-opening experience. Now, I treat some performers, uh, you know, professional singers, and I noticed that that self, um, you know, criticism or uncomfortable feeling with their voice I think fades a little bit when people are used to hearing themselves more and more. It's not the first time they're hearing themselves. And so um, I think it can get better if you're constantly exposed to the, the recordings of your voice. So maybe for you, you might not be as uncomfortable as you were uh, maybe the first few times you heard your voice. I don't know. Uh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I listen to my own voice a lot. So I can tell you that sometimes I get tired of the sound of my own voice, uh, but I'm certainly used to knowing what it sounds like. But even for me, I mean, even for me, sometimes I listen to myself and think, did I really sound that way? Either I'm talking too fast or, you know, any, anything, or, or I hit a certain note that I don't recognize. Um, what, what must it be like then for the, for those that you treat who suffer from voice issues, who, who lose their voice, for instance, or who have to get used to not only uh, not sounding like they think they do to others, but sounding not sounding like they think they do to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I believe, you know, obviously that voice is a really huge part of this overall, uh, you know, ability to communicate and communication involves speaking and hearing. And when there's problems with that, it's a huge quality of life impairment. And so a lot of patients you know, especially elderly patients will come with complaints about, uh, I just can't communicate. I'm a little socially isolated in loud environments. I can't get as loud as I used to. Um, I don't know if I should be here. Should I be here? Should I not be here? And I think the first step with many clinic visits is, is real reassurance that voice is a huge part of everyone's life. And if there are any things we can do to improve the quality of that, um, it's it's tremendously important. So I think my first and foremost goal is to always emphasize how important it is um, to to be able to communicate and speak effectively. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil Bad, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Washington, specializing in treating voice, airway, and swallowing disorders. A laryngologist. A lar I'm going to get this wrong again. Uh, studying of the larynx, so to speak. Um, I guess one of the the questions that always comes to mind is why is it that people's voices change as they age? Because it is noticeable. I think of my grandparents, for instance. Why is it that there is that sort of voice that you hear in in older people? A great question. I uh, this is an area of ongoing research, something I'm very interested in studying, um, and I continue to study. Um, you're absolutely right. The voice changes and there are clear signs when we look at the larynx, just morphologically, the, the inspection of the larynx, things change. So if simplistically you have two vocal cords or vocal folds, as we call them, um, that come together whenever you speak and you get air from your lungs and it vibrates the vocal folds and it creates sound. 
Um, as we age, we notice that the vocal folds change in terms of their fullness. So they sometimes have a bit of a bowed characteristic. So instead of a straight line, they look a little bit more concave. Um, it takes more effort to get the vocal folds together. Sometimes the pliability or the ability to vibrate is also blunted. It just doesn't have that same vibration. So as a result, um, as we age, we have to often strain more to get our vocal cords to touch. And that can lead to that roughness, that strain that we often hear. And uh, sometimes elderly men, for example, will compensate by stretching the vocal cords out, really putting a lot of tension. And actually their fundamental frequency or their modal pitch, the pitch that they normally speak in, starts to go up because they're really stretching those vocal cords. If you imagine a guitar string, really cranking the pegs to get those strings tight. Um, but that's one, that's one part of it. The other part of it is as we age, our lung capacity goes down and the lungs are the power to the voice. So if there isn't as much uh, fuel in the engine uh, to, to power the, uh, the vocal folds, that can also be a part. So while I am focused on the throat, there's multiple subsystems that interplay to shape the voice uh, as we age. I'm speaking with Dr. Neil Batt, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Washington. We're talking about, well, first of all, we were talking about why people don't like hearing the sounds of their own voice. We're also talking now a bit about how voices change or the, the sound of your voice changes as you age. When we come back, uh, I was going to ask you about whether there's anything you can do about it. We know about sort of mental exercise to keep the brain sharp, physical exercise to keep uh, the body toned. Uh, what about your voice? Can you do anything to try to slow down the processes. We'll be back with that. And I'm back with Dr. Neil Batt, an assistant professor of otolaryngology at the University of Washington. He's speaking to me tonight from Seattle. Uh, we started off talking about why people are often surprised and often unpleasantly surprised about the sound of their own voice, what they sound like on a recording, what they sound like to other people. We were also talking about how voices change uh, as one ages. So I guess that begs the question, there are many ways to stay sharp. Can you keep your voice sharp. And I ask this without any personal interest in this. Can you keep your voice sounding the same as you get older? I, I think the answer is yes. And um, there are things we know and there are things we don't know. But we feel as though people who use their voice more tend to stay in a better place. So I think like any muscle, the more you use it, the better the product is. And some of our treatments really support that. So one big part of managing uh, aged vocal atrophy, or as we call it, presby larynx, is voice therapy. So we work very closely with speech language pathologists who are really an integral part of the overall care of patients. And sometimes therapy, including exuberant voicing, really trying to push the voice uh, getting loud, often those are prescribed in therapy form for helping people counter the effects of aging. So um, sometimes people have this feeling, well, I'm getting hoarse, so I'm going to try to save my voice. And, and there are times when you might want to save your voice. You know, if you're a performer right before a big show, you might not want to overdo it the night before. But when it comes to conversational uh, use of your voice, especially when you age, I think there's real advantage to talking as much as you can with friends, even practicing reading the newspaper out loud 15 minutes a day, just really working on 
the, uh, the product, I think, uh, keeps you in a better place overall. That's really interesting advice. Um, I never thought of reading the paper out loud as a way to keep your, keep your voice going. I guess psychologically and physiologically, there is an impact of that as well, because you're just used to using it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting. A lot of patients, uh, some elderly will complain, you know, I don't really talk as much as I used to, and I have trouble communicating. And then I asked them, how much do you speak in a day? And they said, well, I, I don't really talk to anyone. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a cycle. The more you uh, don't use your voice, the more withdrawn you get and more atrophy perhaps sets in. Um, but, you know, I think this is an area of ongoing research and, um, you know, I'm working on things um, to better understand the neurophysiologic changes um, with some basic science work, animal work, to try to better understand what's happening. So I'm really hopeful in the next, you know, five, 10 years, maybe we have some better treatments. We have treatments now, uh, but I think, I think there's an opportunity to improve our treatments. How did you become interested in this? What fascinated you about this field? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, an ownership of an area of the part of the body that we treat the medical and surgical parts of. And, um, you know, in a lot of other surgical subspecialties, you have the neurosurgeon and the neurologist or the cardiac surgeon and the cardiologist. We, we have uh, ownership of this area in a lot of ways. And so um, I, think, I think I'm fascinated by the anatomy. It's very intricate. Uh, it has a lot of important functions and, um, you know, I, as a medical student, you rotate with lots of different specialties. And I think otolaryngologists or ear, nose and throat uh, doctors tend to be good people, really accepting, warm, welcoming people. And so that's, a, that's another uh, uh, important reason. <laughs> and it is interesting because I was thinking sort of a voice recognition, for instance, that, it, that voices are like fingerprints. So in that sense, you are treating people. Not exclusively, obviously, but you are treating people with for whom that voice is is an essential part of who they are and what they are, and and then going through all not only the physiological but also the psychological impact of that changing. For instance, mm-hmm. yes, um, it, it's a it's a big part, and I think that our clinic mission at University of Washington is truly trying to be as multidisciplinary as possible. While I'm the physician, surgeon, there are huge uh, and other parts to the overall treatment plan that need to be addressed. And like I mentioned earlier, the speech language pathologist, but sometimes we get the, the, the singing instructor involved, um, other, other physical therapy, other, other uh, physicians and uh, um, healthcare professionals are all important part of the overall treatment plan. And I guess the obvious last question for you, Neil, Dr. Dr. Bad, is, is what about the sound of your own voice? Because you would have at some point had to come face to face or ear to ear with the sound of your own voice. What, what did you think? And I suppose you could have explained it to yourself by then, but maybe not. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, I probably don't hear my voice as much as perhaps you do. But uh, no, same, uh, even though I have an understanding of the anatomy and physiology of vocal production. Um, I still, uh, I do a double take every time I hear it. And uh, uh, fortunately, I have a brother, I think that we sound similar. So I have, uh, I have the opportunity to talk to him and get a sneak peek at what I sound like. But 
same same feelings as uh, I think the most most people. That is interesting. So obviously, siblings will sound different. Just right. Because, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a mixture of anatomy, and maybe we learn to speak in similar ways, or we model each other's uh, voice patterns off one another too. I think that's also possible. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Neil Bat, uh, thank you so much for your time. A fascinating conversation. Keep up the great work. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For now, though, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies, a very hot topic these days, often leaving people looking a little puzzled, I find, myself included. And of course, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, happened, it prompted those tough economic sanctions and lots of speculation about if and how the anonymity and lack of state control over cryptocurrencies would allow some to skirt those rules. I saw a recent story on Al Jazeera about from a financial source in the United Arab Emirates saying that Russians were buying up property in Dubai using crypto as a way of getting their money out of other jurisdictions and into the Gulf state. Well, let's try and mine some truth on this one. Joining me now is Daramir Brunitki. He's professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria, and he serves as director of the County Countercurrency Laboratory. Welcome to the show, Daramir. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Ben. It's great to be with you this evening. I was going to ask you, countercurrency laboratory sounds like a fascinating thing. What exactly do you look at? Uh, yeah, it's a really exciting initiative, Ben. Um, one of the things that we've done is we've, we've set up this laboratory to study uh, different forms of money. Um, today, money stands at an important and really, I think, exciting crossroads, um, you know, there's new forms of money being created. You mentioned uh, crypto in the introduction. Uh, there's also a history of monetary experimentation, community currencies being created. Things like the euro aren't that old. Um, and so I think we're really standing at a new frontier, a new communications technology, smartphones. These have all really changed money and uh, transformed it into something that's, that's, that's a really exciting area for research and inquiry. So the Countercurrency Laboratory is an interdisciplinary social science initiative that's dedicated towards uh, promoting research and understanding of the past, present, and future of money and the social implications of money trans monetary transformations. Because, of course, when I was growing up, credit cards seemed pretty fancy, but we still carried coins. And, you know, if you go to a museum, you can find coins, as you mentioned in the laboratory, laboratories, um, the write-up about it, you can find coins that are thousands and thousands of year, year, years old. Money didn't change that much for a very long time. And now it seems like it's just in hyperspeed. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, if we think about the long history of monetary technologies, uh, coins are... 3,000 years old. Um, they were invented in uh, ancient Greece around 700 BCE or thereabouts. Um, but they're still a form of, of currency that we use today. I mean, if you've ever tried to park your car at a parking meter, we find coins extremely useful. So that, that's a very old technology. Uh, banknotes are somewhat more recent, but they're still an old technology. You know, the first banknotes came into widespread use around 500 or so years ago, we still find cash a, a really convenient and easy form of, of money to use. Um, uh, and as you mentioned, money has become increasingly digital, increasingly abstract. And uh, these have raised really, I think, important and interesting questions that we're trying to address in the lab. I mean, one of the things about digital money, not just credit cards, but increasingly things like cryptocurrency or 
some of the uh, digital currencies that have been proposed by both corporations and nation states um, is that they offer the promise for real convenience, right? These are really, it would be very, it's very easy just to be able to uh, tap our phones at the checkout counter of a store and be able to, to walk out with um, our groceries or some food or, or whatever we're purchasing. Um, but they also come with a downside and some risks. And we're interested in, in, look, in thinking about these as well. Um, these systems, as they become more ubiquitous, they enable institutions like corporations and states to offer all kinds of instant analysis and surveillance. There's a possibility for censorship. They can enforce blacklists. People can be targeted on the basis of their race, their nationality, their gender, their sexuality, their migration status. So uh, one of the things we're interested in thinking about is the kind of social engineering that might be in, enabled by digital monetary technologies. Interesting. I, I, I mean, I guess now we'll get to crypto because one of the things that I found that I always find fascinating is I remember when those sanctions were first introduced, those very strict sanctions against Russia. I was just reading on Twitter reactions to it. And of course, there was a whole bunch of people saying, well, they'll never work because of crypto. And I was thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? And how could it possibly be true? Um, and we, you know, I went looking for some examples. Obviously, there are some in Russia who are heavily invested in crypto as a hedge, either against the ruble, which is notoriously volatile, um, but you know, and and it being spent. So, what exactly is a cryptocurrency, and how could it be used in this case, or is it being used to skirt these sanctions? Yeah, there's a number of different forms of cryptocurrencies. There's um, cryptocurrencies like Ether. Um, but the most ubiquitous one is Bitcoin, and that's the one that I think has got the most um, traction and most press. And the really amazing thing about Bitcoin is that it um, enables um, anonymous transactions to take place. Uh, it uses something called a blockchain that, ena that enables people to, to basically make anonymous monetary transactions. Um, the, the, the network, the Bitcoin network is decentralized. So it exists on all the computers that are part of the digital network around the world. Anyone who's, who's running the Bitcoin software um, actually has a copy of the Bitcoin digital ledger on their machine. And that's how these transactions can be validated, right? And it avoids the problem of double spending because everyone has a copy of the ledger, all these dispersed network of computers has a copy of the ledger, every transaction is recorded. But the transactions are recorded anonymously through a private key. So they're not indexed to a person's name. Now, it's this decentralized nature of the network <clears throat> that some have speculated will enable um, Russians who want to participate in international uh, monetary uh, or in international business to uh, evade the sanctions uh, because they can operate anonymously on this decentralized network. And, and because it's not that, you know, it's not like uh, the Canadian dollar or the Euro where there's a central bank and there's a, a network of, 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 of government a, a banking, a government banking infrastructure, and then a network of private banks that monitor uh, financial transactions, um, that has uh, led some to speculate that um, 
cryptocurrency can serve as a, a means of avoiding the kinds of very stiff financial trans, um, sanctions that um, Western governments have put on, on Russians. Uh, now, I think you're right to be some suspicious about this. I mean, you mentioned, you know, maybe people are using it to, to um, purchase property in, in Dubai. Um, but I, I think crypto heretofore has really been used more as a store of value than a medium of exchange. So globally, the daily transaction values in cryptocurrency are usually only about between five and $10 billion dollars. Now, that sounds like a big number, but it's an order of magnitude, maybe several orders of magnitude less than the amount of transactions in the overall financial system, right? So it's really not clear that there's enough crypto bandwidth or crypto infrastructure to facilitate uh, the kind of transactions on a, the the volume of transactions that would be taking place on a scale uh, big enough to really enable Russians to use crypto to evade the financial sanctions that have been levied. And I read somewhere that, in fact, people are using crypto to donate to Ukraine. Well, yeah, and that's the really interesting thing. And, it, you know, I think it, it illustrates why we started this lab uh, is because, you know, money is a black box, is often thought of as a black box. You know, it's like something that and, and most forms of infrastructure are like this, right? We, they just work. You know, we don't think about the road system. We don't think about the electrical grid, uh, maybe until there's a blackout or something like that. But uh, money is, is really the same thing, right? It's a form of infrastructure that we really don't have to think about because it often works so seamlessly uh, and whatnot. So that's one of the things where we're interested in, in really unpacking with the lab is to, to take this thing that we take for granted, money, and really subject it to critical social scientific and uh, human scientific reflection, Think about how it works, why it works, who it works for, uh, these kind of questions that often, you know, people just take for granted. So you're absolutely right to answer the question. Um, in fact, several days after the Russian invasion, uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, who's the vice pr- prime minister of Ukraine, called on people around the world to demonstrate their solidarity with the country by making cryptocurrency donations. And it's really fascinating within just the number of, of days, I think three or four days, the number of donations that the volume of donations that the uh, Ukrainian state had um, attracted exceeded 50 million US dollars in cryptocurrency. And this is a direct donation. I mean, people can just log into a digital wallet and transfer this kind of digital value, Bitcoin or Ether or other uh, cryptocurrencies to uh, support the, the Ukrainian state and, and uh, you know, Ukrainian humanitarian efforts and so forth. So it really is working on both sides of this conflict. And that's, again, you know, something that we're really interested in unpacking uh, in the lab. I'm speaking with Daramir Rudnicki, professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria and director of the County Countercurrency Laboratory. We're talking about cryptocurrencies, the war in Ukraine, uh, money in general, uh, the history of money in general, and also perhaps how cryptocurrencies could or can or shall or aren't being used to evade sanctions placed against Russia. When we come back, a little bit more about why someone would donate using crypto instead of just donating using regular money uh, if the Ukrainian government, for instance, put out a call like that. That's next.
I'm back talking cryptocurrencies, money, digital payments, all forms of payments with Daromir Rudnicki and professor of anthropology at the University of Victoria, where he also serves as the director of the counter currency laboratory. Uh, Daromir, one of the things I was interested about, and again, I was going to ask you, I guess I asked you this question coming out of the break was, why would someone donate Bitcoin instead of or crypto instead of just donating straight, even from a request, even with a request from the Ukrainian government, for instance? Yeah, that's a great question, Ben. Um, well, there, there are a few reasons why someone might find crypto more appealing than uh, do donating um, uh, through other means. Uh, for one thing, uh, cryptocurrency enables a kind of anonymity that is not available with, with banking systems. So if you think of even like an e-transfer or a, a digital um, a, a bank transfer, you have to like contact your bank. Uh, your bank has to now contact the government of Ukraine's bank. <laughs> the government of Ukraine's <laughs> bank then has to credit their debit your account or your bank debits your account and then credits uh, the Ukrainian the Ukrainian government's bank credits their account. That's a very long, um, complicated process. It often involves fees, right? So you have to pay fees when you use the conventional banking system. Uh, and those are trackable trans transactions. I can think of a lot of reasons why people, particularly, you know, given the behavior of the Russian state, uh, why people might be a little nervous about uh, donating money to to um, a country that that the Russian army is in has invaded. Right. right. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want Putin coming after me <laughs> uh, True and, and knowing, <laughs> knowing my my political activities. So or your, or I your, think the anonymity is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think, you know, um, the anonymity is a real appealing feature. I mean, you know, we might not worry too much about it here in, in Canada, but in other countries, it could be a real concern. The lower fees are an attraction. Uh, the lack of financial intermediaries, right? This is basically a direct transaction where there's no, there's no intermediary banks that are monitoring these transactions, tracking them, collecting fees on them. So there's, there's some real upsides to, to cryptocurrency transactions. What did you make? And then I'm going back a bit now uh, to the trucker convoy, to the protest, to the blockade of Ottawa. And there was certainly a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies back then. I believe um, police uncovered 34 crypto wallets tied to fund funding uh, the protests, but they cracked down on them. And I guess if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong. The issue is that at some point, your digital currency has to become real currency. And that's where they can find you or that's where they can crack down. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ben. That is the inflection point, right? It's the point at which you try to turn this digital virtual currency into money that's easier to spend at, you know, your, um, I don't know, if you're a trucker, what do you need? Spare tires or something like that. Right. <laughs> so if you want to, you want to buy spare tires or, or whatever for your truck, you you know you're going to have to turn that into a money that the tire company can recognize, right? Most uh, last time I bought tires, I don't know about you, but but they weren't taking Bitcoin <laughs> at the not, tire shop. Not yet. So, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. So you know it's it, it's it's it, that really is the inflection point, and I think that's going to be the real issue for for people in Russia as well. Is well, you know, I've got this cryptocurrency, and it you know there's it's becoming more widespread. But really, uh, the, 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 limit, the limit to it has been people have really treated it as more of an 
uh, security, an investment vehicle, and in that sense, a store of value rather than a medium of exchange. And so it's not a it's not at this point really a widespread enough medium of exchange in order to make it a kind of viable currency for people to do everyday business with. A quick question on behalf of my wife who talks about mobile payments a lot and is always fascinated by them. Of course, we go. Mm. she's from southern China. We go back a lot. There's a lot of mobile payments in southern China. It's very popular. We don't see the same thing here. Why is that? Why does Canada feel like we're so far behind, Forget not to mention the US, but why does it feel like we're far behind when it comes to using new technology to pay for things in the regular course of life? That's a great question. Um, Ben. Um, and, and mobile money is, is spreading around the world in not just in southern China, but it's, it's, it's really popular in places like Africa now. And it's creating real opportunities for people in, in developing countries and in parts of the global south in order to participate and to access banking and financial services. Um, so there's some really fascinating experiments in countries like Kenya, where they have a system called M-Pesa that enables people with just a, a, not even a smartphone, just one of the old type of cell phones that we used to use uh, here in Canada. You know, the, I I don't know what you call it, a dumb phone, Uh, uh, you know, there's a very simple phone, but, but they're using these in parts of, of, of rural uh, Kenya uh, that don't have banking services at all in order to, to basically, um, transfer money, transfer value across distances, and and to create a kind of rudimentary banking system for for the so-called unbanked, which is, after all, the majority of the population. Now, to get back to your question, Ben. um, uh, We have about a minute. Sorry, okay. (laughs) I will will hurry up here. Um, You know, one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons is that there's a bit of conservatism in, in Canada. But the other thing is that our existing payment system actually worked quite well. You talked about credit cards at the outset. Uh, with so many people, with credit cards being so readily available, there's very little incentive for people to move to these, these newer technologies because things like credit cards are, are so widely accepted, chip cards are so widely accepted and can be uh, used so, so, so um, easily. Daramir Rudnecki, thank you so much for your insight today. It's been fascinating. I look forward to having you back and good luck with the Countercurrency Laboratory. It sounds like a great idea. Thanks a lot, Ben. It was a real fun talking to you and uh, have, a, have a great evening. Well, the impact of the war in Ukraine found its way to space today. The European Space Agency has confirmed that it is indefinitely suspending its ExoMars rover mission with partner Roscosmos, Russia's state space corporation. It cements concerns that the war on the ground in Ukraine is going to impact decades of cooperation between Russia and the West in space. My next guest has more than 20 years of experience in military space and security matters. Joining me now is Victoria Sampson, Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation. Thanks for joining me tonight. Oh, thank you for having me on, Ben. Um, I, I guess just to start at the beginning, and I remember this back from the 70s, cooperation between Russia and the West in space, the U.S. in particular, has been a long-standing and very successful collaboration over the years, regardless of what was going on on Earth. Correct. I mean, space has always been a place of geostrategic competition. It's always been a place where there's been security concerns. I mean, that was from the beginning of the space age. It was meant as Cold War rivalry. However, there were times where there was some cooperation in space. And you had the 
famous Soyuz handshake um, in the mid-1970s, where the U.S. and then the Soviet Union were able to make that work. Um, and then as time has evolved over the, you know, over the end of the Cold War, there was interest in continuing to find ways in which for the two former rivals to work in space, just from uh, the viewpoint of establishing a foundation for cooperation um, based on mutual interests and scientific research. I guess there is no better example of that than the International Space Station. Absolutely. The International Space Station um, was, they started, it was built out of a couple different space stations. The U.S. had one that they were thinking about. The Soviets had um, actually one that they had working. But after the Cold War ended, the idea was to try and bring together the expertise and the knowledge that both sides had built to have an International Space Station where it could be truly of global interest and abuse. Um, and so it was, you know, they started working on it in the early 90s. They signed an agreement between 15 countries in 1998. And it was deliberately built so that both the Russians and the U.S. side needed to work together for it to function properly. Like it is, it is a piece of machinery and it will not work without both sides working together. So there's the Russian side and then there's the U.S. side, but the U.S. side actually has a whole host of other participants. Um, officially, there are five space agencies involved in the International Space Station, um, NASA, which is the United States. Roscosmos, which is Russia, the Canadian Space Agency, Go Canada, has been very involved. In fact, um, every Canadian I know who works on space is super excited because the Canada arm helped build a lot of the space station. So thanks a lot for that, you guys. Right. Um, and then you have the European Space Agency, which is representative of 22 countries, and then JAXA, which is a Japanese space agency. Um, so you can see there's truly a lot of countries involved in this. And it has been, I mean, whether or not you look at the scientific experiments and they've been interesting and I'm sure there's been things that they've learned from it, but really what it's been is a tool of soft power reach, a tool of cooperation, of diplomatic coordination and, you know, promoting the idea that there is benefit to working together in space and you can literally get above all the conflict on the ground by having this um, cooperative experimental station on orbit. Yes, we're very proud of the Canada Arm. I'm glad you brought it up, um, obviously. <laughs> I'd be remiss not to. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, and I gather, I mean, and it has been enormously successful. I mean, through thick and thin on the ground, it, it, you know, through through 9-11, through uh, the invasion of Georgia, through Syria, through all the conflicts on the ground. It seems from an outsider's point of view that the diplomacy, the diplomatic mission of space, of cooperation in space has has survived. How is that? How have they managed to to make sure that conflicts don't reach that high? Well, I mean, up until now, it has been a deliberate choice on both sides with a recognition that they need to work together to make sure the humans in space are safe and you know the astronauts and cosmonauts are able to come down safely. Um, the International Space Station has had someone in it continuously since 2000. So we're going on 22 years now, which is pretty amazing when you think about that, to have a continuously habited um, space station. That's, that's pretty wild. Um, and it was, and, and again, the, the, the Russian side, the U S side, um, they, the astronauts and cosmonauts, they, uh, prepare together, they train together, they live together for many months before they go up. Um, both sides have mission control that coordinate very closely. Whenever there's a launch of astronauts, NASA sends a team to Russia, you know, to, help them either get when they're launched or when they're coming back down and you know the same side uh, the, there's coordination on both sides so i mean it, it's been deliberately 
um, engineered so that there's a, a spirit of cooperation and um, coordination. Having said that, um, I, I think you have to acknowledge that obviously geopolitics have, have been a consideration. And I will point out, for example, in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, uh, the U.S. put sanctions against seven individuals, as among other things that the U.S. put sanctions on, but specifically seven individuals. And one of them was Rokuzin, who was the head of Roscosmos. So um, the, the head of the Russian space agency has not been allowed to even travel to the United States because of the sanctions placed on him personally. So again, I would point out, you know, there, it hasn't, it isn't like there's been no acknowledgement of geopolitical issues when we're looking at things like the International Space Station, but they've been able to make it work up until now. I was going to say up until now, clearly the invasion of Ukraine has started a completely different chapter. Uh, in this yes. cooperation, what what impacts are we seeing already? I know there has been one from the European Space Agency uh, announced today. Right, um, that is the ExoMars mission, which is going to be launched. Um, and just based on planetary alignment, it can only be done every so often. And they made the decision now that they were not going to be doing it because it involved the Russians. So they're going to have to wait a couple of years, maybe a couple of years past that. So it's pushed it out indefinitely for now. Um, I will point out, I mean, there's been a lot of press on this issue because, again, going back to the head of the, the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, um, Dmitry Rogozin has been very, I would say, an inflammatory <laughs> participant on Twitter, you know, and saying things like, well, you know, because right, it used to be the only way that um, astronauts could get up to the space station after the U.S. stopped flying the space shuttle in 2011 was via the Russian Soyuz um, vehicle. Um, so for the better part of a decade, actually, that was the only way in which astronauts and cosmonauts could get up to the space station. In 2020, um, SpaceX um, built a commercial vehicle that has allowed options. Um, but, you know, the, there's still a lot of people that depend on getting to the space station via the Russian vehicle. And so Rogozin said, you know, well, they can use broomsticks, you know, to get up there. And, and he made some statements kind of implying, well, you know, yeah, what if Russia decides not to work on its part of the space station and we can just, you know, implying that they would let the space station plummet into the ocean. Um, I mean, the way it works is that um, the Russian side does a lot of the attitude control and that they use thrusters to adjust um, the space station in orbit as needed. Um, and the U.S. side um, creates power through its solar arrays for both sides of the space station. Um, there are some ways in which the U.S. side can do some adjustments with thrusters, but generally speaking, it's the Russian side's needed. And so Ferguson was implying, like, maybe we'll do that. And then a week or two back, um, the Russian space agency released a video, which they said was parody. But they, in the video, they jokingly had um, their cosmonauts leave one of the U.S. astronauts up there as they came back down to Earth. Um, and that's a point of political sensitivity because actually at the end of this month, I think March 30th, um, they actually are planning on taking down one of the U.S. astronauts with the two of their cosmonauts. Um, and, you know, and again, Russia has said, well, well clearly we're not going to leave anyone behind. That was just a joke. But, you know, you can see as a point of, you know, sensitivity, this was not very well received. Um, so there's been that. And then other ways in which, but I mean, I will point out again for the space station, it's still up there. It's still functioning. Um, they're sending more astronauts up in, in, a, you know, in the near future. And right now, the agreement for the space station um, has it going through 2024. Uh, the U.S. recently announced that it would like to see the space station extend through 2030, but not all the partners have said that they're willing to extend it that far. And one of the, the major holdouts is Russia. 
Um, and this is even before their invasion of Ukraine. It is hard to say what's going to happen um, if they decide that they do not want to participate further in the space station. Uh, I think there are people at NASA scrambling right now to figure out what to do. Um, right now, the international agreement that um, created the space station, you know, the one I mentioned from the, the treaty in 1998, um, not treaty, the signature in 1998, uh, basically it allows participants to pull out of the space station given one year's notice. So, oh, we'll see. Um, having said that, I will point out that Russia is in a bad place um, in many places, but, you know, its space program is having problems. Um, the, the, the human spaceflight and the civil space program has been in tatters. Um, they have had serious problems with quality control. They've had huge problems with correction. It was to the point where last um, year, actually, Putin slashed the budget for Roscosmos, just saying that you guys are doing terribly. And also last fall, um, the Russian government passed a law saying that people, Russian citizens could talk to outsiders about the space program. I mean, this is this program is not doing well. And so my, my point in saying that is, you know, it isn't like Russia has the funds and the ability to immediately go out and build their own space station. They just don't. As much as they may say they want to, they don't. And so if they want to continue to be a major space power and they want the prestige of being, you know, a, a global superpower with a, a human spaceflight program, the space station the International Space Station really is their only option for the near future. That's why I'm not as worried about them dropping out. I'm speaking with Victoria Sampson, Washington Office Director for the Secure World Foundation. We're talking about the impact of the war in Ukraine on longstanding cooperation between Russia and the West, including Europe, Canada, uh, the U.S., obviously, in space and what impact this could have. When we come back, what will be lost if this cooperation ceases to exist? That's next. I'm back with Victoria Sampson, Washington Office Director for the Secured World Foundation, an NGO that focuses on the sustainability of outer space, ensuring everyone benefits from space in the long term. We've been talking about the impact of the war in Ukraine on space cooperation, decades of cooperation in space, including on the International Space Station between Russia and the West, including Europe, Canada, the US, and others. Um, I guess one of the things that comes up when you think about it is that if this diplomatic, this one area that seems to have been relatively resilient to animosity on the ground ceases to exist, it feels like something quite important will be lost. Yes, because it's been a bridge, you know, between the East and the West in the past, where if nothing else, the two sides could have a common understanding about being um, emissaries of humankind, you know, and working together and coordinating on scientific research. Um, in space. And with this, I think, um, kneecapping the Russians have given it with their recent invasion of Ukraine and just really inflammatory statements by the head of their space agency, um, this may be going away. And I think that'll be truly a loss because, again, there is so much knowledge and institutional um, awareness built up from the decades of the Russian space program. It'd be a pity to lose that. But also, I think more from a geopolitical viewpoint, you know, there are this this tendril this 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 branch um, this this root between the two sides without it gone it, it limits how much coordination we can do later and it's it hurts the possibility for future coordination or future engagement or future cooperation um, if and when the geopolitical picture changes I know a lot of people think well so what you know why does that really matter but I mean again you're looking at this, what, what do we get at it from, you know, geopolitical coordination from 
diplomatic outreach, there are a lot of benefits to having the major superpowers on good standing with each other, um, not just for space reasons, but just in terms of you know um, making sure that you don't have inadvertent escalation or things go badly. And so when you're, you're seeing, you know, the possibility of coordination of the International Space Station stopping soon, that's one way. Um, another way in which we're seeing Russia cutting itself off was, you know, for many years, the Russian launch vehicles would take up um, other country satellites because their Russian launch vehicles are very dependable, you know, they're a good price. Um, but a couple weeks ago, um, Russia was scheduled to take up um, a series of satellites from a, a company called OneWeb. And they said, okay, and the Russians said, okay, you know what? Um, two things. One, we need you to promise that none of this in, the satellites will be used and the information used in the satellites against Russia in this, in this conflict. And of course, one was like, well, we can't promise that. You know, the blurring of the line between commercial and military space is pretty strong these days. And it's, you know, it's really hard to say one way or the other how information is going to be used. And the other thing was um, the UK government was a major investor in the OneWeb um, company. And so the Russians said, you know what, the other thing we need you to do is we need you to divest yourselves. The, the British government needs to divest themselves from the OneWeb um, constellation before we'll allow you guys to be launched up your vehicle. And the Brits were like, no, of course not. We can't do that. So OneWeb was left scrambling. You know, like literally at the last minute, they couldn't have their satellites being launched. Um, Russia's losing the, vent, the, the revenue that they would have gotten from that. Um, but also other companies and other countries, if you're looking ahead, you're saying, well, how can I how can I depend upon my satellites being launched by the Russians and have to worry at the last minute, they're going to put these really crazy, you know, demands, you know, how do I know I'm not going to lose the money or the time? So, I mean, that, and again, it, it's just, it's another way in which this place of coordination and cooperation and, you know, contact between Russia and the West is going away. And it just, it, for me, it's really disconcerting because I see Russia isolating itself. And when you have, a nuclear power that's relatively unstable and proven that it's willing to be a prior state isolating itself in multiple venues. I mean, that's, I would say that's alarming. Victoria Sampson, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. 